Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, July 25th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back one of his best friends in the whole wide world. We're talking to editor and reporter of Block Club Chicago, Mick Dumpke. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink. The best stuff in town is all at ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to find more Ben Jarofsky content, that's easy. Just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Oppenheimer Fever Tuesday, and here's why. Because last night I saw Oppenheimer. That's why. And all I can do is talk about it, think about it, read about it, write about it. My dear distinguished uh, guest and friend, McDunkey, is standing by. He has not seen it, so you're spared. Me and Mick talking Oppenheimer for a half an hour, ladies and gentlemen. We have other things to talk about. Uh, so many thoughts I have about this movie, Oppenheimer. But I'm just going to stick with this one right here. And um, it's sort of a question, really, about where we are as a society right now in America. So follow me in this, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the subject of Oppenheimer is Robert Oppenheimer, a man who died in 1967, I want to say, at age 62. So his... A heyday was in the 30s and the 40s when he was the most brilliant physicists, uh, theoretical physicists in the world. Uh, and as such, uh, he was named to lead the Manhattan Project, which was the giant project engineered by the U.S. government to build an atomic bomb in a race with Hitler. And Nazi Germany, who would build the bomb first, would be the country that would win the or would be the forces that would win the war. So it was like this existential grave moment in the entire history of the world. Uh, and of course, Oppenheimer and his crew designed the bomb before Germany did. Hitler was dead by the time they designed the bomb. The bomb was dropped on Japan. That's a whole other subject there. My point is, this is ancient history. This is like compelling history to people like of my generation and particularly me, because I'm basically a lefty. I grew up in a lefty household. Robert, Robert Oppenheimer dabbled with the left. Right. He had communist friends. Many of his lovers were communists. I was a total womanizer, by the way. And so, like, believe it or not. Around the dinner table, I would hear conversations about Oppenheimer when I was growing up. I would hear my father and his friends talking about these kinds of issues, usually as they were knocking them back. <laughs> and yeah, this is what lefty history professors talk about, ladies and gentlemen, things like Oppenheimer. This is what I grew up with. OK, so it's like it's intensely matters to someone like me. And there I am. It's like the whole country 
is like flocking to see this movie. I went to Skokie last night to see it with my wife. The 6.30 show sold out. The 10.30 show sold out. In a total Ben Jarofsky moment, Mick is going to laugh when he hears this. I haven't told him this one yet. After the movie was over, I walked out and stood next to the ticket taker as people were walking in. And we were trying to predict which person was going to see Barbie and which <laughs> which person was seeing Oppenheimer. It was a blast. I, if my wife didn't insist we go home, I could have spent another half an hour there, ladies and gentlemen. I was having so much fun. There were so many different kinds of people seeing Oppenheimer. Every race, every ethnicity, every age, mostly younger people. It's the 1030 show, the baby boomers. I'm tired. I'm going to bed. So it was all like millennials and Zs. I don't even think there were a lot of Gen Xers there. Of the McDumkey crowd. I think it might have been too late for the McDumkey crowd. And I'm just fascinated by what does this say about America in the year 2023 that one of the most popular, I don't know which is more popular, Barbie or Oppenheimer. So one of the two most popular movies of the post-pandemic era is a movie about a historical figure from the 30s and the 40s of lefty origins who got totally screwed over by the Red Scare and McCarthyism. I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure what it says about America today, but I'll be searching. I'll be searching for that. And then, of course, well, not only what does it say about America, but what does it say about Chicago? All right, without further ado, because everything is Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on the great McDumkey, dear friend of mine and legendary Block Club investigative reporter and editor. Welcome back, Mick. Good to be here, Ben. And thank you for your patience. No one will know what I'm talking to, but I really appreciate your patience, the great McDumkey. Mick, uh, I'm going to ask you to indulge me before we get started, do a little promotional work for First Tuesdays, uh, a talk show that Mick and I started together many years ago at The Hideout. And uh, Maya Dukmasafa is now my partner in crime. And we take the show on the road every month to a different venue. Uh, this month, August 1st, First Tuesday, we'll be at the Blanc Gallery, 4445 South King Drive. 4445 South King Drive. Mick, it's our annual education discussion and uh, we had a few of those when you and i were partners in crime and so on hand will be uh, megan franklin who is a um, member of the lsc at woodlawn community academy ling young who is uh, uh, also a law, local school council member uh, and a top aide uh, to alderwoman jeanette taylor uh, and um, who is the chairwoman of the uh, Education Committee in the City Council, and an old friend of Mick's, Moise Bawani, uh, who ran for alderman in the 50th Ward and is a school teacher. So we will be having a great free-flowing conversation about education. I urge everybody to show up first Tuesday, August 1st, 7 p.m., Blanc Gallery, 4445 South King Drive. Come on, Northsiders. You can go to the South Side. When Mick and I did the show at the hideout, we'd go, come on, Southsiders, come to the North Side. Right, Mick? It can go to the south side, can't they? It's possible. It is very possible. It's it's doable, in fact. Um, and you and I were uh, very near there last summer, actually, for uh, an event, a Chicago Reporter yes. uh, reunion, which was not too far from where your your show will be held here. So uh, we're here to tell everybody you, you can get down to the south side, north siders. It can be done. <laughs> 
yes, Mick drove me to that event. Uh, Mick and Romana drove me to that event. I'll, it was a blast. So maybe I can talk Mick into driving me down again. On, Mick will be my designated driver at all things. All right, Mick, before we go, uh, I told you I was, <laughs> was going to give you some f- first Tuesday trivia. Uh, Mick and I created this show back in 2014. So here you go, Mick. This is an easy one. Let's see if you can pull this one off. Three first Tuesday guests have served jail time. Or no, excuse me, have been <laughs> indicted. Name the three. Well, Danny Solis. Yes, sir. Alderman Danny Solis, Alderman Rick Munoz. And who is the third person? Well, Proco Joe Moreno, right? Excellent. You yeah. did it. I actually was a trick question that I stumped myself in the middle of it. I realized I'm not sure Danny Solis has served jail time. I I thought about that. You may have noticed a brief pause, the tentative (laughs) answer there, because, uh, well, you changed the question halfway through the question. So uh, I'm not sure I, you know, was he actually indicted? He's definitely served as a government witness. He was caught up in a case, served as a government witness. That much we know. We don't know much else about where Danny is or the status of that at this time, but uh, definitely in legal trouble, Ben. So, yes. and and the fact that we had all those guests was one of the reasons why the aforementioned Romana, aka one of your <laughs> regular guests, aka my spouse, uh, asked me on multiple occasions, "How come all your friends always go to jail?" And uh, which is a pretty funny question because it's not true. And the answer is, well, they don't. These people are not my friends. Yes, I've talked with them. I meet with them. They are they were sources. They we interviewed them, Um, but uh, I'm not sure I would call them friends. And Ben, you're my friend. All of my friends do not go to jail. So let's just correct the record there. Okay? Yes. Romana likes to uh, tease me as well, Mick, about uh, the various guests we've had at First Tuesday uh, down to the years, how sleazy they are. But all right, let's move on from First Tuesday, Mick. And there's two basic topics that I want to discuss with Mick Dumkey. They can consume hours and hours of time. So I'm going to try to reduce it to about a half hour, 45 minutes. One is Mayor Brandon Johnson and his relationship with the Chicago City Council uh, and to progressive politics in general. Uh, and the other is Northwestern, uh, a current obsession of Mick and myself. Uh, we could talk for hours about the hazing scandal in Northwestern and all its implications. Let's start with Brandon Johnson first. Um, you have an article, your most recent article in Block Club relates to sort of general themes that I've been dealing with in my mind and in conversations. And that is how Brandon Johnson can be mayor of the city of Chicago, uh, deal with all the different, what, competing, interests and personalities and remain true to his lefty or progressive roots. Uh, And that's a topic that a lot of lefties are talking about these days since uh, there was a photograph of Brandon uh, and Mayor's Brandon Johnson and Mayor Rahm Emanuel uh, meeting and rejoicing in their newfound friendship that ran on uh, Twitter uh, last week or a couple weeks ago. I can't remember. I've lost track of time. You uh, wrote an article last week about the ongoing dispute regarding land that the CHA owns and is now turning over for a uh, soccer facility. 
and activists holding out hopes that Brandon Johnson may uh, cut that deal or end that deal, I should say. Uh, why don't you give a little more details about the story and then we'll go into the larger topic. Go ahead. Well, you gave a pretty good uh, synopsis, Ben. I mean, this is land on the near west side um, that was once part of the Abla Homes public housing development. It's right next to um, existing remaining part of the Abla Homes called the, the Brooks Homes. Um, and it's it's roughly area uh, between like Loomis and uh Ashland along Roosevelt Road for people who are know the area. Um, but this is something I've been writing about and you and I have talked about before, but I've been re reporting and writing about this for more than a year. Uh, essentially, Lori Lightfoot engineered this deal under which the Chicago Housing Authority would turn over a little more than 23 acres of land that, that has been sitting empty for almost two decades, they would turn it over to the Chicago Fire, uh, the men's major league soccer team in Chicago, uh, which happens to be owned by Joe Mansueto, uh, founder, uh, I think he's the executive director still of Morningstar investment research firm that's been extraordinarily successful and, and made him into a billionaire. And uh, so he came to the city and said he was, seeking help to try to find a large plot of land where he could um, build a new practice facility for his team and because he wanted to move operations from the suburbs back into Chicago. All good, but the land that was offered up to him were all public parcels. They were, they were owned by the CHA and he selected this site, as I said, on the near west side that was formerly part of the Abla Homes. And the reason this has really touched a nerve, Ben, and has become kind of a symbol of public housing and the failures of um, promises to remake public housing is because for most of the last two decades, that land was reserved uh, for mixed income housing. There were high rises and low rise uh, buildings that existed there up until the early 2000s when they were raised as part of this uh, CHA's plan for transformation where they promised to get rid of all these old high-rise properties and decrepit uh, public housing buildings and replace them with uh, mixed-income communities that had more amenities for residents. And, and these new communities were supposed to include uh, public housing residents who were displaced by the plan for transformation. Well, at this site, none of that happened. Mm. Uh, the site has sat vacant for, as I said, for almost two decades. The housing has never materialized. And then under Mayor Lightfoot, uh, the city and the CHA uh, decided that they didn't need it anymore for housing and that they could uh, essentially sell it off. Technically, it's a long-term lease, but it's essentially a sell-off to Joe Mansueto and the Chicago Fire. They cut the deal. Uh, the paperwork was signed in the latter days of Lori Lightfoot's tenure. And uh, now some activists uh, are saying, listen, uh, Mayor Johnson, you're the new sheriff in town. You on the campaign trail said that you wanted to stop these kinds of deals. It's part of your transition report, you know, uh, calling for a moratorium or a freeze on CHA land deals that, that don't involve the production of, of housing for low-income people. So 
it's time for you to step up and, and turn that campaign rhetoric into action and to stop this deal. Uh, so that's really what the story was about. The mayor has been pretty mum about this specific deal since he took office. I actually, I think he's been completely mum about it. And a few weeks ago, a group of housing advocates and civil rights lawyers filed a lawsuit in federal court uh, alleging that uh, there were civil rights violations in the way this deal came together and trying to stop it through legal means. So now the mayor's office is pointing to that lawsuit and saying, we can't comment because there's a litigation pending. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically uh, the progressive mayor who, you know, this was one of the things he discussed on the campaign trail about starting a new push for affordable and public housing and making sure that public housing land was in fact used to help house people uh, now has gone quiet on this particular issue. And activists are saying, we need you to step up and do something about this particular deal. But more broadly, we need you to step up and deliver on some of your, your other campaign promises. All right. Now I'm going to try to take a different, uh, uh, stance on this uh make and i'll tell you why uh so about last week uh i saw the picture of rom and brandon on twitter uh and for uh (laughs) i lost my my mind over that one uh and did one of my classic uh ranting riffs uh on the show about uh how absurd it was for a brandon johnson to um or whoever wrote it in his comms department. I don't know who writes Brandon Johnson's tweets uh, to call to thank Rahm Manuel for his continued leadership. So uh, I, my point was that the leadership of Rahm throughout the uh, two terms that he served uh, formed uh, the policies that the movement that uh, elevated Brandon Johnson to the fifth floor opposed. And that's putting it mildly. So I'm not sure what uh, continued leadership means uh, if you view everything Rom did as mayor of the city of Chicago. The response uh, was from somebody uh, in the uh, Brandon Johnson administration, who I will not name, uh, though I'll give a clue. His first name rhymes with Lonnie uh, and uh, telling me I was unfair to Brandon Johnson. Uh, and essentially, when you're the mayor of the city of Chicago, you have to work with all kinds of people from all different backgrounds uh, and you can't just be a lefty anymore um so i put that in the back of my mind mick that's like the grown-up response uh the adult another uh, brandon johnson defender said uh he's acting like the adult now ben like i'm a child <laughs> i guess that's the implication Mick. um so your thoughts about this? I mean, should Brandon Johnson just say to the activists, guys, you lost uh, the lands going to the fire. Uh, it looks good for the city to have a facility in Chicago that used to be outside of Chicago. Uh, and then Joey Mansueto is a billionaire. He may kick some money into my campaign. Uh, so that would help, too. I think Mansueto gave... 25,000, did you say, to Lori Lightfoot's campaign? Uh, so, then, yeah, then I think he gave $250,000 to Paul Vallis's campaign uh, <laughs> during the runoff. Uh, so, 
He's definitely was a definitely was a player in the election season uh, campaign donations. A heck um, of a choice, a mayoral candidate. Candidate, I, Joe Mansweater. I hope you do better selecting coaches and players than you do uh, mayoral candidates. I'm sorry, there, there I go. The lefty, he, he wasn't so, the only one, right? Um, yeah. So, well, listen. I think that this federal lawsuit um, buys uh, Mayor Johnson some time. That's certainly what they think. And uh, it's, you know, become standard policy, whether it's literally true or not. There, there may be some truth to it, but it certainly becomes standard communications policy uh, for politicians to say, I can't comment because there's a pending lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So that buys them some time. They don't have to weigh in on this particular deal. Uh, I don't know that that stops them from weighing in on the CHA's policies generally. I don't think that that means that they couldn't uh, take some moves to ensure if they don't like this deal, which is what they said on the campaign trail, uh, they being uh, Brandon and his team uh, and and his allies and the people who helped him write a transition report who are some of the same activists who have been protesting the last couple of weeks, by the way. Um, You know, I, I think that they could take some steps to, make it clear they don't want this to happen again, that they could, uh, uh, you know, the, let me put it this way, Ben, the the mayor of Chicago, the Chicago Housing Authority is a separate government entity. It's technically independent, but the mayor of Chicago picks the CEO of the CHA and most of the board members for the CHA. So essentially the mayor of Chicago controls the leadership of the CHA. So if, you know, the mayor of Chicago doesn't like the policies of the CHA. Uh, I think the mayor has some moves that that he can make. And, you know, what's clear at this point is that there are other priorities for Mayor Johnson other than the CHA or this deal. And so I think that the lawsuit, they think, buys them some time. And I think they're going to keep saying, look, we're talking about this. We're meeting with advocates, as you said, what you heard. We're meeting with lots of different kinds of people. We're reaching out to business people. Uh, we're still we're still getting things moving here. Give us a little time. That's pretty much the message that has uh, been going out. But in the meantime, the activists are are getting impatient because, uh, you know, bulldozers are at work over at that site uh, on the near west side at the old Abla homes. Yeah. No, I, I personally, if I had to predict and do one of my uh, infamous uh, bets in Vegas, which I um, I do all the time, I would say this is a lost cause and um, that this is going to happen. And the argument from uh, the Brandon Johnson administration would be that you have to pick your battles. And right now they have uh, several important pending battles, a treatment of trauma, bring Chicago home. And uh, they're just thinking the various uh, the budget coming up, Mick. So the issue will be, you know, who pays what in revenue? The police, uh, police superintendent, police superintendent. Um, yeah. Well, I'm talking about yeah. progressive initiatives uh, that he's going to have to negotiate his way with the city council. Uh, and if you get into a fight with a billionaire uh, who then, you know, uh, it gets irritated at what you do over this land. And then he calls up the Tribune or Cranes or the Sun-Times and gives an interview where he says, Brandon Johnson is anti-business. Brandon Johnson uh, betrayed the trust, whatever. You know how you know how the game is played, Mick. You've seen it many times. Uh, that could 
stymie their efforts on these other front. Oh, I can't forget the minimum wage, raising the minimum wage uh, for restaurant workers. That's going to be a contentious fight. So the strategy would be, in my humble opinion, just kind of look the other way and move on with life because we have bigger fights. Uh, Your thoughts on that? Well, I'm sure that is what a lot of people are thinking. like I said, they don't have to make a move right now. That's the thing. The other, you know, one of the rules in politics is that uh, when you can buy time, you should buy time. It's kind of like you and I are huge basketball junkies at the end of the game. Extend the game, okay? Keep the game alive. If you can get another possession, uh, if you can just, you know, stay in contention and the clock hasn't run out, then do that. So if we're looking at this from the most charitable angle possible, I think at the moment, there's no need for them to start that fight because someone else has already started it. There's a court case. Whether they can comment about the court case or not, the fact is that they don't have to wage the fight. There's somebody else already on the front line. There's a coalition of housing advocates who have filed this lawsuit. So they're the ones waging the fight. And the mayor um, you know, can kind of buy a little bit of time that way. In terms of priorities, I think that you're, uh, well, I'll put it this way. I certainly think that a lot of the mayor's allies in the city council believe the same thing you do. When I canvassed a number of them a couple of weeks back, um, I got some really interesting reactions. The, you know, there's a lot of people leading city council committees now who voted against this deal when it came through the city council. There were 11 no votes and of the 11 no votes, 10 of those people were picked by Brandon Johnson to lead city council committees. So they have, it's, it's, you know, these are the people who control the city council. When I asked him about the CHA and the fire deal, it was clear that it was just not a priority. Um, there were people who said to me point blank, you know, I haven't thought about that for a while. I got so many other things going on. There were others who said, I think it's too far gone. It's really hard once something's been voted on to take it back. Um, even if you can have a, a do-over vote, like there's a political cost to that. So I certainly think that is where most of them are as well. What most of Mayor Johnson's allies are, are essentially saying the same thing that you are, Ben. Like, we don't like this deal. We want to make sure that it's not happening in the future, something similar, but it's probably going to be really difficult to unwind this in this and many other ways. It reminds me so much of the parking meter deal that you and I covered back in the day. Um, this is a different kind of deal. This was not a revenue producing asset. Um, although it could be, it's valuable land. Uh, but you know, it was uh, a deal concocted behind closed doors. Um, a lot of people affected don't really know much about it. And, it was done uh, and, and, you know, the repercussions were essentially handed off to another administration that is, uh, is either unable or unwilling to fight the fight, to, to try to undo it. So um, I don't know if Rom, you know, I actually, I actually, I do believe that back in the day, Rom would have loved to have gotten rid of Mayor Daly's parking meter deal because he knew he would have been a hero to do that. But as you and I kept hearing, we were reporting about, um, you know, Rom's little tweaks and so forth to the parking meter deal. Uh, they, they didn't want to tear up a contract with yeah. a, a, a powerful set of business interests. The precedent for that would have been terrible. The political costs, like you noted, 
would have been too high. So they just claim that they were doing something about it with all these tweaks, which may have actually made it worse. And in this case, I suspect that uh, Mayor Johnson and his allies will try to find some sort of uh, solution. You know, if annoying people like me keep this uh, in in, you know, keep this in the news that they will yeah. find some sort of solution where they can say, look, we couldn't stop that one. That was on our predecessor, but we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. All right. I got another parallel uh, and uh, that I, th- I think is applicable. So uh, in the last city council meeting of Mayor Rahm's administration, uh, he twisted the arms of Alderman to approve the Lincoln Yards shift deal. $1.3 billion, uh, to subsidize the gentrification of an already gentrifying neighborhood. Uh, s- soon thereafter, Lori Lightfoot became the mayor. And around the time Lori Lightfoot became the mayor, uh, Amish Patel and other activists filed a lawsuit against the Lincoln Yards TIF. Now, if Lori Lightfoot was following the Brandon Johnson model, she would have had her uh, press spokespeople tell inquiring reporters like yourself, there's nothing we can say. There's nothing we can do about this. There's a lawsuit. We can't comment on lawsuits. We got nothing to do with the lawsuit. We're not a party to the lawsuit. We're just going to let it play out. What she did was she sent her lawyers into court to fight Amisha Patel's lawsuit and ultimately defeat it. And as they explained to me, because in those days they still talked to me, Mick, it didn't take long for them to stop. But in those days they did. As they explained to me, they said, Ben, we cannot have Amisha Patel dictating what our TIF policy is. So it's our policy. We're in charge. She's not in charge. Whether we support it or not, we're going to fight for this because we don't want outsiders coming in and tell us. I didn't believe that line, Mick. I just thought they were taking care of that deal. Because they didn't want a bunch of upset billionaires running around, bad mouthing them to uh, cranes and the Tribune. Uh, but that was their argument. Do you see that it, distinction between how Lori Lightfoot dealt with it and how Brandon Johnson is dealing with it? Yeah. And, and again, the parking meter deal, remember, there were lawsuits against the parking meter deal. And the same thing. I mean, I wrote one story after another about how. Rom sent city lawyers to defend the parking meter deal in court, even as he was you know, criticizing it uh, on the campaign trail and as mayor. Uh, So, uh, you know, yeah, I think that at this point in time, we'll see what happens as this thing goes forward. If it further entangles the city, Uh, you know, again, Brandon Johnson effectively has control of the CHA, you know, are they, they have lawyers in court right now who are fighting this lawsuit. Okay. Already. So it's, it's one half step removed, but uh you know, he has not pulled out all of the resources available to try to stop this thing. And that's an indication that what you're saying is exactly true, Ben, that they just don't think that there is uh, a clear pathway either to win or to win without extraordinary political cost. All right. Uh, all right. So that brings us to the photograph uh, and the text of uh, the, the great meeting between Mayors Rahm uh, and Johnson, uh, where uh, the text, uh, Mayor Johnson thanked Rahm for his continued leadership. So I, I know I called you up and bent year about this <laughs> off mic uh, that weekend. As I recall, I was taking a walk and 
ranting and as ranting. I recall, I was one of many people who was surveyed uh, slash uh, uh, you know served as a uh, therapist for you as you went into a, a fit over this this image. Yeah. So this, yeah, and many, that's right. Yes, uh, you were one of many. Yes, you were indeed. <laughs> At least a dozen. Uh, so you know what? Give you the best twist you can uh, on this complete rewriting of history. Uh, how could it possibly serve the interests of, and I was, I just want to say, I was not alone as a lefty who was upset by this by no means. I just want to let people know. Uh, so um, I was not alone. So give me the best twist, Mick. How could this serve the interest posing with Rom, praising Rom, lauding his leadership. How could that assist down the road uh, in passing legislation that lefties would want uh, Brandon Johnson to pass? Well, as I recall, when you first texted me the image, I saw the picture and I don't think I saw the tweet. I didn't see essentially the caption that was put on the picture by uh the mayor's communications team and you and I went back and forth. I was, I was a little taken aback, but then I was, you know, as just so everybody knows, Ben and I have a relationship where I am often playing devil's advocate. Okay. <laughs> and that's just a role I fall into. And it's, it's a fun one. We, when we kind of sort things out, spar a little bit. So I played devil's advocate and I said, well, you know, he's the mayor of Chicago now. Ram is the ambassador to Japan. He's a former mayor. You know, is it so outrageous for the current mayor to talk to a former mayor and who also is active uh, as the ambassador to Japan? Maybe there is something in the city for this. You know, maybe there are questions he has about being mayor. Maybe there's a relationship to build with Japan that, that Ram could somehow be helpful for. And uh, And then you pointed out, you know, what the tweet actually said. I don't know if it was a tweet, Twitter or Instagram, uh, but it basically, you know, the, the praising of Rom's leadership that went along with it. And to me, that changed the, the tone of this uh, pretty considerably. But to answer your question, I think that if you are justifying it, that's what you say. This is a former, whether you liked his policies or not, he is a former mayor. He probably has some insights. He made some insights about what not to do as mayor of Chicago. Uh, I think a lot of your listeners would argue that is very much the case. So um, I could see some potential merit in it, in it that way, if we're being as fair as possible to mayor Johnson. Yeah. Uh, what not to do. He would say, just don't do anything I did. And you'll do <laughs> what, <laughs> which is something that Rom would exactly would definitely not say by yeah. the way. Uh, no, he, he would tell Brandon to cut off all those lefties. Stop listening to the lefties. Do what I do, and you'll go far in the world. You too will be an ambassador one day. Uh, all right. So there really is no, as far as I could see, uh, substantive help uh, Rom will ever give Brandon. Uh, for instance, let's just say, uh, oh my goodness, let's just do an example: uh, treatment of trauma, reopening the clinics that Rom closed. Okay, uh, I can't imagine Rom making phone calls to, uh, let's say, Brendan Riley uh, or uh, Brian Hopkins 
or I'm thinking of other aldermen who love Rom, uh, but would vote no, may vote no against Brandon on this issue. Uh, Nick Spazzato or uh, uh, Raylo, Ray, Raymond Lopez, or oh, Anthony Beal. Anthony Beal has now sort of emerged as an opponent, conservative opponent of uh, of Mayor Brandon on initiatives. I can't see Rom sticking his neck out like that. Uh, do you? Well, I can't imagine him getting involved in a specific piece of legislation in the Chicago City Council. That just, uh, I mean, you know, Rom didn't really want to get involved with the details of governing, even when he was mayor of Chicago. <laughs> I can't see him getting involved in it now as ambassador to Japan. Uh, so if there was some sort of deal cut between the two of them, um, I have to imagine it's something else beyond that. Yeah. Well, do you think it would help him? This is the other thing uh, that uh, Brandon's defenders are saying um, that uh, all those lakefront liberals who voted for Vallis uh, and um, just could not bring themselves to vote for Brandon for whatever reason, that picture will sort of uh, make them feel better about Brandon. Uh, and that's like the psychological benefit. Some this is the argument that uh, some of Brandon's supporters have been bringing to me that it'll it'll win over. It'll be like a horse whispering to uh, nervous North Side liberals. Uh, you think that's a possibility? It's possible. Uh, I I don't I don't know how many of them are waiting around to see if uh, Rahm Emanuel says something nice about Brandon Johnson, but, uh, you know, or how many of them are on social media following this kind of thing. But uh, I could see the, th the thought process being that this can't hurt to have this, the picture of the two of them to show that Mayor Johnson is not so far out there. He's not a, he's not a Marxist. Look, he's sitting down with, with Ron, yes. who's one of our guys. Yeah. And uh, so I, from that perspective, I'm sure they're thinking this can't hurt us to, to you know, with that crowd, at least. Yeah. All right. Well, and they're also Ben, listen, I mean, with all this, they're also gambling. The mayor and his team, the current mayor and his team are also betting that his supporters are not going to bail on him. They're certainly not going to bail on him this soon when they they know there are other things coming down the pipeline. And so that even if they don't get it, if they're offended by the picture with with Rom, that, you know, they're not going to bail on Brandon. They help get him here. They're invested. That's, I'm sure, part of the equation in their mind. Yeah, they have a little leeway on this one. Uh, right. I, st I still think they gave up way too much than they got, but we will move on. And that I will. Uh, that's what do they say? What's, what's that line to Steve Kerr? That's my story and I'm sticking to it. They gave up <laughs> way too much uh, and bad, bad moment in negotiations. Thank God whoever wrote that uh, tweet and wheeling and dealing uh, is not running my beloved bulls uh, when they make trades. All right. Um we will move on to Northwestern. We'll close with Northwestern because I know Mick and I could talk forever about this. And I, I'm just going to uh, begin this by saying this. Uh, for a few years, Mick and I were partners in crime doing investigative stories uh, for the reader. This is like, I forgot, Mick, from like 07 to, oh, I forgot. I forget the years. It was like, we, we, we had a first run and then you left the reader. Then you came back to the reader. Uh, and then, so we had that second run and I forget the years, but the second around, run was from like 
2011 to maybe 2014, something like that, something 2013, like that. something like that. Yeah. So I, I admit I'm biased with what I'm about to say. I think pound for pound, we were the best investigative team uh, in the history of Chicago journalism. There, I said it. Okay. Uh, and uh, so this is my way of saying, Northwestern, you are lucky that this team is not together uh, with this story breaking, because I could tell you, we'd be doing some humdingers uh, on this baby uh, if we were still in that game. So the Northwestern hazing uh, scandal, Mick, um, you and I talked about it at length on one of our uh, famous uh, phone conversations. I think it was this weekend. Um, I mean, the last weekend as well. Um, as I said to you, I just wrote a column about this. It is one of the most cynical moves that the way Northwestern handled it, in my humble opinion, is extremely cynical. Uh, the way they pretended uh, that uh, they had done this exhaustive uh, investigation that was um, going to look out for the best interests of Northwestern students when, in fact, I don't know, they kind of used that investigation uh, as a way to shove the whole thing under the carpet at first in the hopes that they could uh, keep Pat Fitzgerald on as coach and continue raising money for their stadium and then the student newspaper broke the story uh, with the details that the, the Northwestern had left out and everything has been a response to it uh, since. Uh, so that's my take on it. Very cynical uh, maneuvering by the powers that be at Northwestern. What's your take? It's pretty similar to yours. I think that um, they conducted this investigation. They uh, released a summary of the investigation on a Friday late afternoon, if not early evening, um, like, you know, in July when people are checked out, uh, that's what we call the, the news dump, the Friday news dump. And this was like a summer Friday news dump. So they it had the look of wanting to say that they looked into it and that they were announcing the results to the public. Uh, while at the same time doing everything they could to make sure very few people saw the results of the investigation. And we never, we still haven't seen the results of the investigation. They didn't release the actual report that they commissioned. They released the summary, uh, which as you and I were discussing before, uh, it's not even clear who who wrote the summary or who was responsible for posting it on Northwestern's website. It's just like it's no authors attached to it or anything. So it's these are classic maneuvers to avoid accountability. They're not names and titles attached to the information that's released. And the information is released in such a way so that it's uh, transparency is not the goal so much as saying that you're being transparent and trying to minimize the damage. That's really what it looked like. So I agree with you. It looks like the whole thing was arranged so that they could say they looked into this hazing issue and that they could uh, retain uh, the former coach, Fitz, Pat Fitzgerald, who's been very successful by Northwestern standards. He's been extraordinarily successful on the field with multiple um, winning seasons, several 10 win seasons, which for College football fans, you know, that's a pretty big deal. And it's a really big deal at Northwestern, which was uh, not so long ago, earlier in, in both of our lifetimes, known as like the worst Division I football program ever. They had the longest losing streak ever at one point. 
And uh, so really seemed to be, you know, one of the faces of the turnaround of Northwestern football and Northwestern sports generally as a player, then as a coach. Um, and also, this is not to be minimized, has been extraordinarily successful as uh, as a face, an ambassador for Northwestern athletics. And I would say for the university at large, he's been, uh, you know, as I understand it, like a really great fundraiser for the athletic department. Um, something we have to give him credit for Northwestern foot, Northwestern's football team under his watch has regularly ranked one or two in terms of graduation rate rates in the NCAA. So all this enabled NU to say, look, we're, uh, we're in the sports game. We're winning on the field most years and we're doing it the right way. And so one of the reasons I think this hazing thing is just blown up the way that it has is uh, not just that it occurred and not just the uh, apparent attempt to sweep it under the rug, both of which are, are awful, but also um, because Northwestern kind of had a holier than thou approach to its football program in particular, but its sports programs generally look, we're competing on the big stage, big 10, we're succeeding, but we're doing this the right way. And this all, this all cast out and, and says, no, that's absolutely wrong. All right. So let me ask you the, uh, the honesty question. Uh, and I, I, I think about this stuff a lot. Uh, I make when crisis like this happen. I raised it when, for instance, when, uh, mayor Rahm with his handling of Laquan McDonald with the video of Laquan McDonald, some the parallels as we talked about, uh, mayor Rahm essentially did the same thing. Northwestern did. He buried, the evidence uh, because he didn't want to deal with the ramifications. Uh, as a result, there was no accountability uh, until a Cook County judge ruled, ordered, commanded the city turn over the video that showed that more or less official version of events that Laquan McDonald attacked uh, the police officer did not happen. And in fact, he was just executed at point blank, 16 shots. Uh, I always wondered if Rom had done the right thing at that moment and just told the public point blank, there's some very disturbing images that we have on this video uh, that they contradict the official police version of what happened. Uh, this must be dealt with. There have to be accountability. Uh, we have to end this culture. I believe he would have done a great public service. And then when I say things like that, people usually laugh at me and they go, you're so naive. He never would have been reelected. That's not how you play the game, et cetera. I then ask the same question of Northwestern. If you have evidence of hazing, if they had just come out and said, this is awful, God awful evidence of hazing, we apologize. Uh, we've asked our coach, you know, to, to change his behavior, to accept responsibility and accountability for it. They may be in a different position uh, today than they uh, uh, they currently are. Your thoughts about handling things the quote unquote honest right way and doing it the way that most people do it, which is to try to sneak away with something else. I agree. I agree with you. I mean, you know, this was uh, the old the buck stops here. Harry Truman, um, who made a lot of mistakes, you know, was mocked and ridiculed. Um, you know, operated as I believe, like right when his first, uh, his first, he finished Roosevelt's last 
uh, term, but I, and I believe he had a minority. I believe, um, I believe he had a really difficult time in Congress. Like Democrats, did they control? This is really getting off track, going way <laughs> in the weeds. But the point is, this all this, you know, yeah. there, there's there's a there's a precedent for handling this very badly. There's a precedent for covering things up, and then there's also a, there are precedents in politics of politicians who step up and said, I'm going to tell you, tell it like it is and let the chips fall where they may. And people end up rallying in that. And, um, you know, I think that that has worked for a lot of people. And I think that it could work. You know, Ram is actually a pretty uh, savvy political operator much of the time. And, uh, you know, I, I think that he is he's very good at very practiced at spinning things. And uh, you and I sometimes will be texting each other when he's making headlines from Japan now. And, and we're amazed by the coverage he's getting as the yeah. Japanese ambassador. And we're like, you know, what a character this guy is, what an ability he has to spin a narrative about himself. So if anybody could have done it a different way, I actually think Ron could have. Um, but the reason he didn't is because he already had several years <laughs> as mayor where uh, people didn't believe him because of other things he'd done. So uh, maybe he decided, look, I'm not going to be able to do that. Maybe he was smart enough to know he wasn't going to be able to pull it off. I don't know. I guess I'm contradicting myself, Ben. I'd like to think that someone who goes out there and tells the, the honest truth and is thoughtful about it could still have a future in politics. I do think that's actually true, um, but uh, that's not the path that that Rom took, and that's not the path that Northwestern has taken, uh, at least not initially. Yeah, and it doesn't seem the path that anyone is taking uh, in contemporary uh, society. Uh, Mick, I I'm just trying to think right now where we're at, if anybody has ever taken that approach and just confess, I know Bill Clinton didn't do it uh, with uh, the, his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Uh, I know, well, I mean, Donald Trump, it's just, I mean, the, he's so outside the realm of anything related to truth that you can't even put him there. But I believe it, it does have, it has corrupted. Uh, it has corrupted our political process in my opinion, and there's just such a lack of belief that's just so widespread. Um, like when I posted my um, my riff on uh, Brandon uh, and and the picture with Rom, the, the response from people is, is like like bad mouthing politicians. You know, well, what do you expect? They're all politicians. They're all full of it. They all they do is lie. They're all you know prostitutes, etc. And so forth. Uh, and I just think that um, that lack of belief, that nihilistic attitude about government is fueled by moments when North, the Northwesterns of the world or the ROMs of the world so blatantly deceive us or attempt to deceive us like we're really treating us like we're really stupid. I think it, it has a corrosive effect overall. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. It's... Um... There, it's just there are layers to this, Ben. It's like a lack of honest talk in politics. It's a lack of accountability. 
it just goes down even to basic things now where so few elected officials are willing to uh, grant an interview to a journalist. I mean, I try, you know, you ask for, uh, I, listen, I reached out to the CHA um, asking them for an interview with the, with CEO Tracy Scott, her predecessor uh, one point in time, you know, let me tag along with him as he was visiting a bunch of sites on the South side and he was interacting with residents and, you know, was there some scripting involved and where they chose to go that day and stuff? Sure. But it's not like they coordinated hundreds of people living in these buildings and what they were going to do. So, you know, he took a chance of letting me ride along and in between stops, we had conversations. I asked to have a similar experience or at least an interview with the leader of the CHA and or one of their top officials, and I was turned down. So the only way I get anything from the CHA is either through a, a formal FOIA request, uh, which they're usually pretty good about responding to, or I have to send them questions, and then they send me canned answers to those questions. And that's just, I'm just bringing this up as an example that I'm dealing with, but this is kind of the way politics works from the highest levels down to uh, ultra local elected officials. They just don't want to go out there and be in unscripted situations anymore. And, and so I think that's really closely tied with what you're talking about, about sometimes it's outright lying, but in other cases, it's just this kind of like practice obfuscation so that they don't have to give direct answers to, to critical questions. Yeah, that is the new strategy. Don't directly talk to reporters. Don't talk to Mick Dumkey, whatever you're doing. Definitely don't talk to Ben Jarofsky. Uh, you're right. And uh, so um, it's a very unhealthy situation. All right. I'm going to try to close with a little optimism uh, and uh, really not optimism. But you mentioned Harry Truman. I began with Oppenheimer. I'm urging you, Mick, to see the movie. I'd really love to get your thoughts about it. It's a three-hour-long movie, uh, but I think it's well worth seeing. But the reason I bring up Truman, there is a wonderful, in my humble opinion, a scene in the movie with Gary Oldham, the British actor, playing Truman uh, and meeting with Oppenheimer. It's based on a real meeting that um, Oppenheimer and Truman had uh, in the White House uh, after the the two atomic bombs had been dropped. And uh, Mick, it is just it's such a revealing scene about the difference between a, a scientist haunted by guilt and a politician who is free of guilt because he thought he did the right thing and ultimately saved American lives. And that's what matters. Uh, and, uh, so I urge you to see it for that reason alone, because Harry Truman was a different kind of politician, I guess they don't exist like that anymore. They do not. And I certainly by, um, by speaking highly of his, uh, you know, forthcoming style, I'm not defending the decision to drop the bombs or anything like that, or every other decision he made deeply flawed, like every uh, politician, every human being. Uh, but you're right. It was a different era. He had a different style. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people quote or point to Harry Truman as some sort of model, but not very many people 
<laughs> adopt that in practice yeah. anymore. Um, and one other thing, while we were chatting, I did look it up. I wasn't totally crazy. In 1946, uh, the first election after he took office, the Democrats lost control of the U.S. House. So uh, Harry Truman, you know, was greeted with great skepticism. People just didn't think he was up for the job. And that included uh, the American public, which, uh, you know, essentially voted against his party and voted against him by sending uh, more Republicans into the House and giving them control. Um, And then soon after, Democrats, of course, uh, recovered and held on to the House for many decades after that. So that's a whole other story. All right. That's a whole other story. Very good. All right, Mick, thank you so much for being so patient today. Nerdland has always been. We got to well, no, I I mean, a little bit. I really have to resist the temptation because I could go down a whole thing about Harry Truman, the bopping, dropping of the bombs. Uh, it w- were either one, quote unquote, necessary. Uh, it definitely was Nagasaki necessary. Uh, and, uh, and then the counter argument that I've heard my entire life make, if I may use you as a therapist on this, uh, my father was a GI who was uh, on a uh, ship, troop ship going to uh, the Pacific when the bomb was dropped. And you know how many people have told me <laughs> that if he hadn't dropped that bomb, you wouldn't be here because your father would have been killed in the invasion. Yeah, uh, which is like an existential question that I can't really deal with, Mick. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, it's that's really it's yeah. I mean, this stuff is so difficult. Um, you know, the little I know about it too is, uh, you know, one of the arguments has always been um, how bloody all those battles were to take over the islands of the South Pacific. Like each one was, uh, you know, Japanese soldiers were fighting to the death. They were not, this is how the argument goes, right? That they were not willing to give up. They were incredibly bloody. The war was not getting any easier while the U.S. was slowly winning. Um, It looked like it was going to be a long time before victory was assured. Uh, So anyway, this is a whole other conversation for another time. But uh, it is, I am looking forward to seeing Oppenheimer and, um, one thing we can say is that, uh, um, what's going on, listen, what's going on right now with, in our politics and trickling down to Northwestern, I agree with you is, is corrosive. And, um, I'm glad that we have a chance here to talk about it because, uh, we're trying to do our small part, right? And your listeners are trying to do their small part to get information, to make informed decisions and to make sure people can't hide. So that's what this is really about. Absolutely. All right. That's a good uh, place as uh, any to close it. Thank you very much, Mick Dumkey. Again, thank you for your patience. And also want to thank producer Chris for doing an outstanding job as he always does. Producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more, all at chicagoreader.com. Follow The Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show podcast on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.